Well, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Obviously, I was planning on doing this last week and was providentially hindered, and so we will be doing it today, and then next week we will start Philippians. So hear God's Word. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He's commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever, and this is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would guide us today. Lord, without Your Spirit at work in us, these words will fall on deaf ears. Without Your Spirit work in me, will be nothing but um, powerless words. So empower me and strengthen me, Lord, physically, mentally, spiritually. Unite our hearts, Lord, as we prayed earlier, to fear Your name. Be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I grew up in the era of classic TV, A-Team, Dukes of Hazard, and Airwolf. So classic shows, but I also grew up with 80s Christian music, and those were my youth group years, and one of my favorite musicians was Rich Mullins. Now, I won't admit to some of the others I listened to or even some of the concerts I went to when I was younger, but I will admit to Rich Mullins, because and my, my musical tastes have, have morphed over the years. And actually, my youth pastor knew Rich. He went to Cincinnati Bible College with Rich. And I remember one time uh, at our youth, with our youth group, we were at a concert and sitting on the front row, and Rich walks by, and my youth pastor goes, hey, Rich. And he turns around and goes, hey there, Fred, how's it going? It was just like a cool, surreal experience for me as my youth pastor knew Rich Mullins. And I still love, and I listen to Rich's music, he had a way with words that I think few match today. Now, granted, granted, some of his songs have, how should we say it, a bit of a cheese factor to them um, that's, that's very clear, and probably one of Rich's most famous or most recognizable songs I think has some aspect of that to it, and it's the song, Awesome God. Mullins sounds like he actually wasn't the biggest fan of the song, at least in some ways. He, if, if he was asked, uh, what would be on your list of greatest hits? And he, he didn't actually think Awesome God would be on there, though he goes on and he says this. He goes, no, I, I think maybe Awesome God would be. And he laughs and says, you know, the thing I like about Awesome God is that it's one of the worst written songs that I ever wrote. It's just poorly crafted. I think a great songwriter is someone who is able to take a very meaningful piece of wisdom or of folly or whatever, 
and say it in a way that is most likely to make people respond. But what you want them to respond to is not how cleverly you did that. What you want them to respond to is your message. And I think he did that with the song. Here are just some of the lyrics, and I try not to sing them. But, and when the sky was starless in the void of the night, and then everyone said, that was lame, but we'll try it. He spoke into the darkness and created the light. Still not that great, but we'll keep going. Judgment and wrath he poured out on Sodom. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. And then the chorus, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Now, I can still recall singing that at youth group, in church. I can recall leading it um, in worship for um, crusade when I was on staff. And yes, it's, it's not the most skillfully of written songs but it does communicate a beautiful biblical message. And that message is really in keeping with what our psalm speaks of today. As our psalm calls us to worship, to the fear of our awesome God. And I know that can be a confusing idea, the fear of the Lord, but it really is beautiful when you grasp it more and more clearly. And you're going to grow, hopefully, all your life in your understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. And so our psalm directs our eyes and our hearts and our faith to God in, in seeing and recounting His works and character. And so my hope this morning and my prayer is that we see those things. And that by seeing them, by remembering them, we will learn to live in the good, right, and liberating fear of the Lord and therefore not live in the fear of the day that can all too inordinately influence our lives every single day. So the text of the psalm begins with these words, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So this is a psalm of, of thanksgiving. It's a, it's a psalm of praise. It's almost a mix. We've talked about this before of a, a song of orientation that's this grand hymn of praise as well as a psalm of reorientation that's more thanksgiving. So it's kind of like everything's good and everything's back to good. It's kind of got a mix of all those. But no matter which of those it falls onto, this text is wonderful instruction. And it strikes in a, in a particular way that unfortunately is impossible for us to see in English. This is actually an acrostic psalm. Okay, we can't see it in, he, in English because it's not written that way in English. But in Hebrew, after the praise of the Lord, after the initial hallelujah, it has 22 lines, each with a, starting with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's actually paired very much so with Psalm 112. It's actually, there are actually um, connected psalms. They're both acrostic. And Psalm 111 focuses more on God and on who God is, ending with a response of man. And then Psalm 112 focuses on the nature of the man of God. Now, the first verse of our psalm is a statement of praise. It's a praise uh, to, to, to praise and thank Yahweh, the covenant God. It's, it's done in the company of the upright in the congregation. Now, that word company, it's interesting, it stresses fellowship. 
It stresses enjoyment of being together in that company. It stresses the fact that we come together with friends. We come together with um, compatriots, in, in a sense, in, in knowing the Lord, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the second word, congregation, stresses that, that whole idea of the entirety of the community come together in obedience. And so both words together stress this, this beautiful picture of friends um, in a community. It removes any idea of there being cliques within the community of Christ. And so that's how it starts. And the praise and thanks is focused as we move through the psalm on the works and the character of the Lord. And as, as we see, as that praise is given through the works and characters, when we see that, we see then at the end of the psalm what knowing those things will do for us. So look at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, I love this verse. It says so much in such a small amount of space. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, when it uses the word works here, it's, primarily, it's, it's a word that primarily is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the creation of God, not, not to, to what God has created, okay? It, it, it's meant to direct our hearts to the Creator. And folks, the other day I saw, I saw this video and I, I thought about bringing it and, and showing it, but it was a video of probably like a GoPro or something strapped to the back of an eagle. And the eagle was flying through these snow-covered mountains. And you could watch his head flip from side to side, probably looking for prey, but it was just majestic. It was glorious to see it from that angle. Ang angle. And, and then I look at mountains, and I look in particular at these mountains, seen those in person, and uh, they just create awe. Or I look at a sunset, just beautiful, the colors of this sunset. Or I look at a place that I've never been before, but I really want to go to, Lauterbrunnen, Switzerland. Look at that. That looks like, looks like the, you know, the Lord of the Rings or something like that. It's amazing. And I see in all of it the hand of God. But then that got me thinking about something else, and my favorite animal in the world is the peregrine falcon. This is an amazing bird, okay? So it's a bird of prey, and one peregrine falcon, you can see it on the right, and, and just how it's contorted its body, it has been clocked at 242 miles an hour in a dive. And it goes in that dive, and it can pull up just in time, snatch another bird in its claws, and take off for home. It's unbelievable. And actually, if you look, one of the planes in our U.S. military looks almost just like that peregrine falcon on the right because God knows how to design things. So it's the fastest animal on earth. But then I thought about there was another bird called the white-throated needletail that can actually propel itself in straight level flight at up to 106 miles an hour. That's insane. That's crazy. And then just, just think about this. Just go, go beyond it. Think of the grace of a mountain lion or the strength of the polar bear, or the sheer size of a blue whale? Or what about the rolling in of a thunderstorm and, and the sheer power involved with that? 
And then, just at night, look up. Our solar system, or during the day, our sun. Our sun is so massive, over one million Earths could fit inside of it. And inside the sun can reach 15 million degrees Celsius. Or Jupiter. You know, all the other planets could fit inside Jupiter. And then just go a bit beyond that and think of things like black holes or other galaxies, and it's just wild. Psalm 8, verses 1 and 3, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Not only do I look at that and wonder at the amazement of God, but I consider my smallness as well. Consider my smallness and the magnitude of the one who created it all. I I take delight in the creative nature of God, and it leads me to ponder more and more of His magnificence. A God who can do such works that are full of splendor and majesty. See, that's the nature of God's work in creation. They, they point us to God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Folks, when we look out and we see things like that eagle flying or the falcon, we should not view those works apart from God, but we should allow them to grow our view of our Creator the creative nature of Him. I I didn't even mention the animals at uh, the the bottom of the sea that no one sees but God. Our God is creative and amazing. But folks, if we only knew God as Creator, that would actually be kind of scary. A being that powerful, I think, would be overwhelming. We would cower in fright before one like that. So the psalmist not only writes of the works of God in creation, but the works of God in redemption. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. This word for works here points us, like I said, not to creation, but to God's saving acts. And He's caused them to be remembered. His works are a memorial for His people. They serve to help us look to Him, to help us remember who He is. They keep our memory alive as we study them. Remember is actually a very key word in the Scriptures because we so easily forget. And when we do forget God's works, it will affect our day-to-day lives. We'll end up living like practical atheists in the day-to-day. So what does the psalmist recount? Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. This referring to God providing manna in the wilderness after he had freed the people from bondage in Egypt. But I think beyond that, it points to God's steady hand, steady faithful hand in his provision for his people. He is our comfort in life and death. He does hold every bit of us in his hand. Then verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his work in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Not only were they freed from bondage, but they were given the land of promise. And so this pictures Joshua as a type of Christ leading God's people 
into the land of promise. In verses 7 and 8, the works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. Here we have the giving of the law, the way God's people are to live as those freed from bondage, as those in covenant with Yahweh. We'll then look at verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. In some ways, this verse is a summary statement of sorts. All all that God did to rescue His people, the, the whole of the Exodus, this phenomenal display of God's splendor and majesty, His power, His grace, His faithfulness. And as Christians, we not only look back and remember that work, the work of the Exodus and all that God did, but we actually look back at the greater exodus, the exodus that Christ did, His work of freeing us from our complete and utter bondage to sin. Folks, God's works are amazing, and they serve a glorious purpose, and their purpose is to point us to our God. And listen, we have an immense privilege to study them to study them, to delight in them, to seek after them, and and not to seek after them in the sense of we have to find some hidden treasure, but to seek after them when we know right where they are. In pondering them, in taking great interest in them, because they reveal God Himself. When I lived in Turkey and Aaron and I were dating, I would daily wake up with anticipation to check my email, because we actually had email back then, but also to check the physical mail to see if some letter actually came from Aaron. And if I got anything, I would pour over that letter multiple times. I would rearrange what I was doing, and I would read it. Not, you know, clearly, because it wasn't a chore. It was a delight for me to read something that told me more and more about the woman I love. And so, folks, we have that privilege of delighting in our God. His general revelation to us in in the works of creation, but also His special revelation through His Word. You see, the Scriptures not only proclaim the glory of God, but they are what we have before us every single day to pour over, to study. We don't have to search and, and try and figure out, where can I find out more about God? We have this unbelievable privilege to go to His Word every single day. And we can do it in multiple formats. We can have it read to us. We can study it. We can have it in song, all kinds of things. We can delight in God's Word. And so my prayer is that the Lord would enlarge our hearts, not only to pursue Him, but enlarge our hearts as we run after the way of His commandments. And as we do this, we'll see more and more of His character in the gospel, in in this golden thread of salvation woven throughout all of Scripture. What a delight, what a privilege we have to study God's works and to see God's character in those. And that's another part that's set forth in this psalm, is God's character. I skipped over portions of some of these verses because they address God's character, and you really can't separate it, but it worked better for the outline, so I did it this way. So we're going to look at verses 3, 4, 5, and 9, the end of them. So verse, the end of verse 3, and His righteousness endures forever. 
Four, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Five, He remembers His covenant forever. Nine, holy and awesome is His name. So woven throughout this text is the impeccable nature of God's character. It's all throughout. It's splattered throughout this text. His works display His righteousness. They're an outworking of His righteous nature, and what He does can never be anything other than righteous. Nothing can limit God's righteousness either, and it endures forever and ever and ever. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, if you look back to verse 4, so look at all of verse 4. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Why does the psalmist go to the Lord is gracious and merciful after stating that the Lord has caused His wondrous works to be remembered? Why, why mention His name? Alec Moitier, who's a great scholar of the Old Testament, he speaks that, that, that what the psalmist is doing is telling us that part of what it is, part, part of what is to actually be remembered is the Lord's name itself. We, we don't think of names in the same way that they did in the Old Testament and in those days, that the name really meant a whole lot more. There's meaning to the name. Exodus 3.15, God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, to be remembered as the covenant God, Yahweh. So when we think on His name and the scope of what it means, we're enabled to see more and more the nature of His works. To, to ponder His name, as Moitier writes, is to recall, appreciate, and understand His works. His works are not separate from who He is. His name tells us who He is. When Moses, Moses asked the Lord to show him His ways, he wanted to see the ways of the Lord in order that, that Moses would know that he had found favor in God's sight and that God was with him. He said, I, I'm not going to go up if, you're not, if your presence doesn't go with us. And so God called him up onto the mountainside, and he does so to show him his glory. And he just sees the backside of the Lord's glory. And, and when God passed by in front of Moses, he proclaimed his name. Exodus 34 Starting in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses, his response was he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That is the most quoted part of the Old Testament, is the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And folks, when we think of the works of God, of creation or redemption, 
we have to remember they are the works of God. They flow out of who He is. If we don't know who God is, then viewing His works in isolation won't really help us. But knowing, knowing who the Lord is, knowing that He is gracious and merciful and compassionate, that He has commanded His covenant forever, that He can never forget His covenant, that shines a light not only on the works but further on God Himself, and it points to the end of verse 9. Holy and awesome is His name. See, God is holy. And there's really a kind of a twofold meaning to that word holy. First, God is distinct. He's separate from His creatures. He has infinite majesty. He is exalted above us all to a degree that we cannot really comprehend. I mean, if you think about it, the sinless angels cover their eyes around the throne. The four creatures, the living creatures, cover their eyes and their feet around the throne. They cannot even gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We cannot comprehend how distinct and how different God is, which just is all the more amazing that He took on flesh in Christ and condescended to become man for us. So first, He's distinct, but second, it's an ethical holiness. God has no connection with sin, with moral evil. God is absolutely pure. He's morally excellent. There is not the the slightest hint of stain. His name is awesome. His name is awesome, and it is to be feared. Awesome, that, that word awesome in Hebrew, it has the same root as the word fear in the next verse. And so I think this is kind of a transition and a push into what I believe this verse, that this psalm is pointing us to from the very beginning, and that is to the fear of the Lord. And the great benefit that comes from a proper fear of the Lord. Now, I know the fear of the Lord is not a concept that we talk about very much anymore. We read it, and most likely we just read right by it. Because we, we don't get it, or we turn it into, well, that just means we revere Him okay? And there's a lot more to it. But we don't use the language of the fear of God today. We don't… When was the last time you described someone as, yeah, I know John. He's a God-fearing person. No one says that anymore. And honestly, I think that's to our detriment. We're not better off for that development. John Murray put it very simply. He said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Fear of God is the soul, it's the heart, it's the root of godliness. It's the heart of our spiritual life. John Owen, one of the greatest theologians ever, stated that the fear of the Lord encompassed the whole worship of God, moral and instituted all the obedience which we owe unto Him. All of our life with God is, in a sense, governed by the fear of the Lord. So then I want you to look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. I I, I really think that the reason why this psalm has recounted all that it has, all the, the works of God of creation and of redemption, is to remind us and to give us the foundation, to recount the foundation, to give us greater grounding in the fear of the Lord. 
Now, I understand that for some of you, that might seem a little bit crazy. But as I've been studying this and reading to prepare for this, I've seen more and more why this is important. And I'm sure, and I, and I hope, and I pray that I will continue to grow in the fear of the Lord. I pray that you will continue to grow in the fear of the Lord. I've been reading a book, some of you might have read it, called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. And the, it's a wonderful book. It's about, as he puts it in the subtitle, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. Because uh, listen, folks, I, I think we live in a time where just this overall fog of fear is prominent. It just, it's like a, a, a fog delay on our lives right now that's just hazing out everything. Now, for some older folks, maybe you've dealt with times of more acute fear, and we've all had maybe more acute fear. There was fear at 9-11, maybe fear Bay of Pigs or during the Korean War or something like that. But this chronic fear that we have right now as a nation and as a world and how universal it is and how quickly we hear bad news I think it's unprecedented, and it makes for very anxious people and very anxious times. The news, social media, so much of it is driven by fear. The headlines, they're clickbait of fear. And all of that leads to anxiety and worry and uncertainty, and distrust, and suspicion of anyone who doesn't think exactly like you do, and it's not a good way to live. Folks, living in the fog of fear is completely unsustainable. It is unsustainable in our lives. Reeves wrote this. He said, though we are more prosperous and secure Though we have more safety than almost any other society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. Protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. It's because of this overall fog. And Reeves' contention is that we have lost our fear of the Lord. And honestly, I find his argument pretty compelling, especially when I look at Psalm 111 and all that it is pushed to, because too much have we centered our fear, what we uh, look to and, and what controls us, on the wrong objects. And that decentering of fear away from God leads to other fears rising more and more to the surface. And they're not good. Financial fears. Folks, I know I struggle with this so much sometimes. And the Lord has been so good to me. If I look at the Lord, I feel great about it. If I look at other things, I don't know if I'm like, well, inflation's ridiculous, and blah, 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 blah. Whoa! Nutty Chad comes out, and it's just not good. So there's financial fears. There's fears about people saying the wrong things or having the wrong ideas. We have to have safe spaces in places of higher learning because we're afraid somebody will say something that might offend us. Because speech harms now. There's fear of illness, of course. 
Fear of losing our prosperity, of, of losing what we know. Fear of what the future might hold for us. There are few fears innumerable. And folks, that leads to anxiety and everything else I've already mentioned. But the fear of the Lord, that proper fear, as this psalm helps us see the works and character of God, actually is a happy and healthy fear that shapes and controls our other fears, thus reigning in anxiety. Now, when we know who God is, when we know from where our only comfort in life and in death comes, that does shape and control our lives. Now, I am not saying that if we have this perfect, proper fear of the Lord, every other fear is gone, okay? I'm not saying they're going to be eliminated. The stimuli for many of those fears is, are going to remain. But how we react to those stimuli will be changed when we're governed by the fear of the Lord. It's not going to be anxiety and distrust and suspicion and just this utter fog, but it's going to be one of trust in the God who loves and has never let down His people. Never once have we ever walked alone. Never once did He leave us on our own. God is faithful. God is faithful. Knowing God really does make a difference, not for eternity only, but in our day-to-day living. It has to. Look at Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 38. God says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart (coughs) and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Folks, do you hear that language? God, our God, will not turn away from doing His people good. You know, we could go to Zephaniah 3, that he rejoices over us with loud singing. God has made covenant with us, and we've seen that perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. He's worked redemption for his people and giving himself for us. Think of Psalm 130, verse 4, says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. John Owen wrote a commentary on Psalm 130, and three-quarters of the commentary was on that one verse. Because it's so amazing. With God, this God who has given us forgiveness, that leads us to this fear, this fear not of cowering, but a fear of love. Practicing a right fear of the Lord is our wisdom It is good understanding. The fear of the Lord is, like I said, it's not this cowering fear that pushes us away from God where we we back up further and further, but it's a fear of love that draws us into the heart of God. It draws us in to His loving arms. It's a fear that shows us that we understand who is actually in control and who is sovereign. So now as we're over a week into this new year, 
my encouragement to you all is pursue the fear of the Lord. Really, it's pursue God, get to know Him in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, and let that grow your fear of the Lord. Study His works and words, delight in them. Have a plan for that so that you'll do it and see your fear of God grow and your other fears and anxieties start to diminish. God is good. He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word and this time together, and we ask that You would grow our fear of You, grow our knowledge of You, grow us in all that is good for us. We do live in fearful and anxious times, and so much of that is understandable. But Lord, help our fears to be governed by that right fear of you that shapes and controls everything. Thank you that you love us and delight in us as your children. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.